Thank you very much. Yes, we do continue this series on the Trinity, and uh, we're going to start where we start every week. But there's a question first for everyone in the room. I wonder if we've got any fans of the film series Back to the Future. If you're a fan of Back to the Future, put your hand up. There are one or two who are prepared. Oh, yes, there's a few more now. They're starting to to uh, admit it. Um, so fans of Back to the Future believe that the diagram here <coughs> looks like uh, the um, diagram that we show in regard to the Trinity. So this is the flux capacitor fitted to the DeLorean driven by Marty McFly. And uh, the flux capacitor was the thing that made time travel pr- uh, possible in that wonderful iconic series. But even more mysterious than that is our own theological flux capacitor. There it is. As you can, so you can see why people have thought it looked quite similar. Um, and we're using this each week to help get our heads around the truth of the Trinity. And when it comes to the Godhead, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And the Father is not the Spirit. But the Father is God. And the Son is God. And the Spirit is God. Simple enough, isn't it? These statements, uh, there are three statements which, ev- which make it even more glorious and mind-shattering. And the- these are they. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. Wow. That means... God is God. Mysterious, otherworldly, supernatural, miraculous, eternal. This is the God we worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And over a number of weeks, we've been trying to get to grips with this wonderful, eternal reality. We have wrestled with the truth about God being three persons. We've reflected on God the Father, we've reflected on God the Son, and now we come to God the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the Bible, John's Gospel, chapter 3. Now, there was a Pharisee, this is from verse 1, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. 
How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now this is a long old passage, but let's just have a look at it. See, one day this man called Nicodemus, he decides he will go and speak with Jesus. And he goes at night and he goes in secret. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' time. Pharisee means separated one. And there were 6,000 of them in Palestine at the time. They were the teachers in the synagogue. They were the religious examples in the eyes of the people. And they were self-appointed guardians of the religious law. They were important religious people. And so this religious leader, he goes to speak with this itinerant preacher called Jesus. And Nicodemus starts the conversation the only way he knows how. He says, look, Jesus, it's clear that God's with you. You're a teacher. You've come from God. Now, Jesus' reply is incredible. I think my reply would have been something like, well, thanks, Nick. That's very kind of you. You're not so bad yourself. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus cuts to the chase. He looks Nicodemus in the eye and he says, I'll tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus is shocked. What? Born again? Born more than once? What do you mean? Once you're born, you're born. You can't enter again into your mother's womb. Nicodemus is clearly confused and Jesus explains further he says I tell you the truth no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born of water and the spirit flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit see Jesus is saying here look there are two types of birth physical birth water birth being born of water giving birth to flesh that type of birth and spiritual birth. So we're born physically, and then we're born again spiritually. And sometimes people have said to me, are you one of those born-again Christians? And I say, well, actually, I don't know of any other type of Christian. Because to be a Christian, you must be born again spiritually, reborn. So I want us to think about our spiritual lives today and particularly if you're not here if you're here and you're not sure if you're not here you're in trouble but if you're here if you're not here let's have a think about 
you're not here today, if you're here and you're not sure of your faith, let me just say this to you. Before we know God, before we become a Christian, we're spiritually dead. We have no spiritual life. But when we become a Christian, when we receive the Holy Spirit, this is really important. As we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. God, by His Spirit, becomes a permanent resident. He's not a lodger. He moves in for good. And Jesus says here, when we become a Christian, we are literally born again. In other words, up until the point we become a Christian, we're alive physically, we're alive emotionally, intellectually, relationally, but when we become a Christian, we are born spiritually. We're made alive spiritually, and that's why we use this phrase, born again. The spiritual part of us is awakened, and we come to life in that way. That's really important if you're here today and you're not sure of your faith. I just want you to understand that. And Jesus was explaining this, interestingly, to a religious man. He was speaking very clearly about the foundational truths of faith to a man who was clearly part of the religious establishment. And he'd been a part of it for a long time. See, the Pharisees believe themselves to be good people. And there are many people today who believe themselves to be good people, and they are. But the great wake-up call, the one that Nicodemus needed to face, was this. You've got to be born again. Simple, straightforward truth, which is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit as he comes upon people and causes them to come to life spiritually. The truth is, Nicodemus, that you come into relationship with God in exactly the same way as anyone else. In exactly the same way as the worst offender you can possibly imagine. Because it's not through your goodness, but it's through your faith in Jesus. And Jesus summarizes this in the most famous verse in the Bible. He says, God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will never die will never be separated from God, but will spend eternity in heaven. This is what it means to be born again, to be born spiritually. I don't want any person in this room to miss this. I wanted to dwell on this just for a moment or two. Let's not be religious. Let's not be religious and do all the right things, but miss the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit as we respond to God. So to summarize, Jesus is saying that the work of God, the Holy Spirit, is first of all connected with our salvation. So the moment we become a Christian, that is the beginning of this process. And at this point, we become spiritually alive and the Holy Spirit becomes a resident dwelling within us. But what does this really mean? What does it mean for the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, to be at work in us every day from the moment we become a Christian. The very presence of the living God, day by day, being part of our lives. What does that look like? As we're being empowered by the Holy Spirit. We, see, we receive the Holy Spirit and we become empowered. When we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit and we also get baptized in the Holy Spirit. We become empowered. And when we're empowered, we receive gifts and we become effective in our Christian lives. We're going to talk more about that 
on the very last week of this series. But for now, let's dig down a little bit into what happens once we've received the Holy Spirit at salvation. What does the Holy Spirit begin to do for a Christian, for the new Christian, and then continue to do day by day for us as Christians in our daily lives? And so with this in mind, we're going to go back to the Bible. We're going to dig in. This is big stuff. So you remember that Jesus, in his words to Nicodemus, he spoke about being born of flesh and being born of the Spirit. Being born of the, spe- the, the flesh is about our natural lives. Being born of the Spirit is about our supernatural lives as God gets, gets involved. So in this next bit of the Bible, the writer Paul, he makes that same comparison. He's talking about the realm of the flesh which is our natural lives without the presence of God. And then he talks about the realm of the Spirit, which is our lives with God's presence upon us. So Romans 8 from verse 9. Paul's writing to the Christians in Rome. Interestingly, Andy over there, who brought the uh, prophetic insight a little bit earlier, you may remember, he had no idea what I was going to speak about he had no idea I was going to make reference to Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8 in the context of being uh, of, of God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So, interesting that. I wonder how Andy managed to come to that conclusion. Maybe God told him. Romans 8 from verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. He's writing here to Christians in Rome, Paul. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. In you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves that you live in fear again, rather, The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So, it's one of two points to pick up out of this amazing passage. Firstly, it's clear that any Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. From the moment we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit as an initial blessing. Receiving the Holy Spirit is part of the proof that we've become a Christian. The body of every Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We want to encourage every one of us today. If we're here and we're a Christian, the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit is every believer's privilege from the very beginning of their Christian life. 
Verse 9 makes this clear. If we've repented, if we put our faith in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't belong to Jesus. There's also this wonderful description of the different persons of the Trinity. Uh, In verse 9, it mentions the Spirit of God living in us and the fact that we have the Spirit of Christ. Verse 10 then goes on to explain our mortality and how that compares with the eternal life we have and we're given through the Spirit. So every Christian has this strange dichotomy going on. A body that is subject to sickness and decay and ultimately death, and a spirit that has life and eternity. The famous theologian Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. The moment we enter into this world, we begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. It's cheerful stuff, isn't it? But, but what we have is this double condition. A dying body and a living spirit. And yet, as verse 11 teaches us, the ultimate destiny for our body is not death. It's resurrection. And we can be sure of this because of the nature of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He's not only the spirit of life, he's the spirit of resurrection. Again, the the Trinity comes bursting through in verse 11. The resurrecting Father, the resurrected Son, and the Spirit of resurrection. And the promise here is that the resurrection of Jesus is, is like a pattern for us. The same Spirit who raised Him will raise us. And the inner witness of the life that we have is yet another wonderful pointer towards that resurrection. The same Spirit who's given us life, who's given life to our spirits, will also give life to our mortal bodies. The reality is that every Christian will receive a brand new, perfect resurrection body one day. I'm looking forward to mine. He can do better than this, apparently. It's not a surprise. Verses 12 and 13 then talk about our obligation because we've been given the life of Christ. Because His Holy Spirit dwells within us, we have the ability to put to death the stuff which is harmful and not of God. It's interesting that we're instructed to put these things to death. We're instructed to do that. It's not as if God gets some sort of universal shotgun and blasts them out of the water. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Those ungodly things are just blasted away. But we are the ones who are instructed to put these things to death. And I'd like to say just two things about these verses. First one is an encouragement. Because of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, because God's presence is upon us, we have the power and the ability and the capacity to put to death the things that would otherwise get in the way of our ongoing journey, of our ongoing relationship with God. God would never have instructed us through his Bible to put to death things if we were not given the power to do so. So that's the encouragement. The second is a challenge. Often in our Christian lives, putting to death is not about blasting out of the water. It's not about a quick fix. 
putting things to death, habitual sins or addictive behavior or ongoing battles with things that we may do or say or think that are wrong, all sorts of different things. Sometimes those things need to be starved to death. And so we don't feed them. We starve them. As we focus on all that God has for us, we focus away from the things that would otherwise distract us or barriers that otherwise would prevent us from wholeheartedly following God and running the race of faith. And then finally, verses 14 to 17 discuss the wonderful reality of the fact that because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we are stirred and we are prompted to know deep within us that we are the children of God. As we become Christians, the Spirit comes upon us. We are adopted into his family. And there's been a lot of discussion about that this morning. As Helen brought her prophetic song, Sarah spoke about adoption. We're given this wonderful, close, personal, loving relationship with our Heavenly Father as we're adopted into his family. We have immediate access to him in prayer. We enjoy membership of his whole worldwide family. We've been nominated as his heirs. There's this wonderful contrast in verse 15. Before we're Christians, we find ourselves in slavery to fear. Particularly, I would suggest to you, fearing that God is our judge. And then that fear gives way to freedom. As we have the courage and the boldness to approach God, not as a judge, but as our Father. We also receive this glorious inheritance because we are adopted into the same family as Jesus. We are co-heirs with him. So as I conclude, I'd like us just to link these two bits of the Bible that I've read together. Jesus' great statement to this religious leader was about being born again. It was, a, it was about receiving spiritual life, not some religious duty but the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit as he comes upon a brand new Christian. And of course, as this happens, we receive all sorts of wonderful benefits. And some of those are described by this writer Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. The Holy Spirit dwelling within each of us confirms that we are indeed saved, that we belong to Christ. The fact that the same Holy Spirit brings to life our spirits, is the very one who raised Jesus from the dead. That gives us great confidence that one day we, we, we ourselves will receive resurrection bodies. The fact that the Holy Spirit is within us means that we have the, the power and the authority and the capacity to put to death ungodly things that would otherwise damage our deepening relationship with God our Father. And finally and gloriously, the Holy Spirit's presence gives us confidence in our identity as the children of God. As the children of God. All of these benefits that I've mentioned, all of these wonderful privileges, let's just pause for one second. They're not for some select bunch. They're not for just the special Christians. 
They're for all of us, for every Christian. And I don't know about you, but I believe that that is something worth celebrating. So with that in mind, I'd love us to conclude by worshipping God together. I wonder whether Josh and the team would come. And I wonder whether we could stand together. And in the light of the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from the moment we become Christians, and there may be people in the room who are not yet sure of their faith, I want to encourage you, go and speak and pray with the prayer team this morning. This may be a big opportunity for you. Let's stand together, shall we? I'm going to ask Josh and the team to lead us as we worship God in the light of this wonderful truth about being born again of the Holy Spirit. Let's sing There's Nothing Worth More.